Welcome everyone to another edition of Governed by God, a biblical look at law, civics, and government. My name is Eric Leupold. I appreciate you joining me on today's episode. Now, today we are continuing with our series on climate change and judgment. This is part two of that series. Uh, last, last week, or last time I should say, we looked at some passages from Deuteronomy and Exodus, basically the first five books of the Bible, looking at what God has to say regarding uh, how sin affects the land um, of, of any people, whether it's Israel or the pagan nations that were living in the land of Canaan. But before we continue on in that discussion, I want to take a look at our law of the day. Uh, today's law is from the book of Leviticus. It's chapter 25, verses 1 through 7. And here is what it says. The Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come to the land that I give you, the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years you shall sow your field, and for six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its fruits. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. You shall not reap what grows of itself in your harvest or gather the grapes of your undressed vine. It shall be a year of solemn rest for the land. The Sabbath of the land shall provide food for you, for yourself and for your male and female slaves, and for your hired worker and the sojourner who lives with you, and for your cattle and for the wild animals that are in your land. All its yield shall be for food. End quote. Now, there's also a parallel passage in the book of Exodus. It's the fourth commandment, Exodus 23, verses 10 and 11. For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield, but the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. All right, so looking a little bit at interpretation of this passage, the the issue here is uh, is the concept of, of rest or Sabbath, and this is a very deep and vital um, aspect to understanding God's law. Sabbath is a significant topic and one that would take a lot of time to really unpack. But essentially, God modeled Sabbath in that he worked six days creating the universe, creating the world, and then rested on the seventh. And part of God's design was that the world would also engage in both work and rest. Other pagan nations uh, did not do this practice as far as we know. Uh, certainly we see in the book of Exodus that Egypt made Israel work constantly, and it was very clear that there was to be no rest for the people of Israel. So, And, and it doesn't seem like there was any concept of resting in um, the land of Canaan before Israel entered. I do also uh, remember reading about the Roman Empire did not have really a day of rest. It was a very pagan idea that you would just keep on working. There would there would be no no rest. And so from a pagan mindset, the people and the land can be abused. I mean, the idea is get as much as you can out of the people and the land. Uh, the idea of resting from that kind of a mindset, that, that means, well, I'm not getting any wealth. I'm not producing anything. I'm not working on that day. It's a waste of time. It's a waste of money. I could get more if I just work hard and make everybody else work on every day of the week. So the issue, though, is that this assumes that the world was not designed by God. God designed the world 
to function with this pattern of work and rest. And interestingly, the land of Canaan is described as needing rest from sin and from being overworked. And Israel was to provide both. They were to enter, cleanse the land, uh, and practice righteousness and be good stewards so that the land would have rest. Rest from sin, but also physical rest uh, with the practice of Sabbath. Sabbath was also a mercy for the land. Uh, As we read in those laws, it provided for the beasts of the field and the wild animals and for the poor and the needy. Essentially, Israel was to allow their land every seven years to have a year of rest that anybody could come and could could eat and could pick the food uh, and not really work or very minimal work, um, providing for those who who really typically can't provide for themselves. Interestingly, it also, and this is not really mentioned explicitly, it's more indirect, but the idea of rest restores the nutrients of the soil. So I did a little bit of research on this, and it's interesting to see that um, our modern idea of crop rotation ties into this, where you don't want the same crop to be grown. Uh, It diminishes certain nutrients in the soil, and it can add... um, basically undesirable things, uh, minerals and and uh, salts there in the ground. So you want to rotate it uh, in order to give essentially a little bit of rest from doing the same thing over and over again. But interestingly, in the more arid and semi-arid uh, lands, there could be an accumulation of salt that would, that would come from irrigation and, and continual working of the land. And the idea of Sabbath, giving the land a rest, not tilling the soil or pruning it or fertilizing it or irrigating it, basically allows those salts to uh, to diminish and to and to be uh, taken care of uh, naturally. So it would avoid the buildup of these salts, which if you don't um, get rid of them, if you don't eliminate that, would just continue to make your land. Uh, less fruitful over time. So there, there is a spiritual and physical aspect to this. Now, ultimately, uh, in fulfillment of Christ, uh, Jesus is uh, our ultimate rest. He is our rest and our peace, as the book of Hebrews makes clear. But the pattern of work and rest remains, just like the pattern of marriage remains. Jesus is the, the, is, is the bridegroom and his church is the bride. Um, but just because uh, marriage is a picture of Christ and his church doesn't mean that marriage no longer exists anymore. And the same idea, Jesus is our, our Sabbath rest, but the pattern of work and rest is still important. It's still necessary on, on God's creation that humans and the land be able to get rest. And certainly that's physical, emotional, mental, spiritual. So overworking the people and the land leads to their demise. And to deny the land its rest is to turn the land against you. And this does tie into our discussion on climate change and judgment. And I'll talk a little bit about that later on. But what's interesting is Second Chronicles chapter 36, verses 20 through 21, describes how Israel was exiled from the land of, of Canaan, land of Israel, uh, for 70 years. They were taken into captivity so that the land could enjoy its Sabbaths. The idea being that Israel had failed to honor the Sabbath and to keep it holy 
in accordance with the fourth commandment. And so God says, okay, well, you've denied the land at Sabbaths. I'm going to give the land at Sabbath by removing you from the land because you were not doing that. So uh, I just I, I think that ties into um, sin and how it affects the land as well as the adherence of the fourth commandment. Now, that is our law of the day. Let's move right on in then to the main topic, continuing part two of this discussion on the issue of climate change. Now, again, last time we looked at some of the Old Testament, or should I say the first five books of the Bible, some of the passages there. This time I want to take a look at some of the prophets and see how what, what they have to say regarding quote-unquote climate change, both with Israel and with um, pagan nations like Babylon and Egypt. So the first passage is Jeremiah chapter 4, starting in verse 19. Here's what it reads. My anguish, my anguish, I writhe in pain. Oh, the walls of my heart, my heart is beating wildly. I cannot keep silent, for I hear the sound of the trumpet, the alarm of war. Crash follows hard on crash. The whole land is laid waste. Suddenly my tents are laid waste, my curtains in a moment. How long must I see the standard and hear the sound of the trumpet? For my people are foolish, they know me not. They are stupid children, they have no understanding. They are wise in doing evil. But how to do good, they know not. I looked on the earth, and behold, it was without form and void, and to the heavens, and they had no light. I looked on the mountains, and behold, they were quaking, and all the hills moved to and fro. I looked, and behold, there was no man, and all the birds of the air had fled. I looked, and behold, the fruitful land was a desert, and all its cities were laid in ruins before the Lord, before his fierce anger. End quote. So, we have a picture here of this, uh, uh, you might want to call it an um, uncreation or, or decreation. The land is formless and void. There is no light. There's quaking land. There is desert. No humans. No fruitfulness. There's no cattle. All the birds and the beasts have fled away. So it's just very interesting how this picture of judgment is almost a reversal of the book of Genesis. In Genesis, you have the creation, you have the, the land is formless and void, but then God fills it. God, let, let there be light, creating the land, populating it with the birds of the air and the beasts of the field and then humans. Um, but here we have the reversal. God's uh, judgment of sin is basically a decreation of that land. Now, maybe one could argue that it's just pure, it's, it's just pure imagery. It has nothing to do with real birds of the air and real beasts of the field. I would argue that's not the case, and I think we'll see that in some of the next passages. And the next one is from the book of Ezekiel. It's chapter 14. So, starting in verse 12, here's what it says. And the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, when a land sins against me by acting faithlessly, and I stretch out my hand against it and break its supply of bread and send famine upon it, and cut off from it man and beast, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they would deliver but their own lives by their righteousness, declares the Lord God. If I cause wild beasts to pass through the land, and they ravage it, and it be made desolate so that no one may pass through because of the beasts, even if these three men were in it, as I live, declares the Lord God, they would deliver neither sons nor daughters. They alone would be delivered, but the land would be desolate. Or if I bring a sword 
upon that land and say, Let a sword pass through the land, and I cut off from it man and beast. Though these three men were in it, as I live, declares the Lord, they would deliver neither sons nor daughters, but they alone would be delivered. Or if I send a pestilence into the land and pour out my wrath upon it with blood to cut off from it man and beast, even if Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, as I live, declares the Lord God, they would deliver neither son nor daughter. They would deliver but their own lives by their righteousness. So that passage, it's interesting. It describes the four acts of judgment, pestilence, war, beasts, and famine. And it's interesting that this same concept is what will later on be described in the book of Revelation with the four horsemen of the apocalypse. So pestilence, war, wild beasts, and famine. But in this case, God is judging all the nations. He's telling the prophet, you know, if any nation does these things, not just Judah, it's not just applicable to Israel, but uh, any nation that does it, even if that nation had Noah, Daniel, and Job. Now, Noah is not Jewish, and neither is Job. Daniel was. So it has nothing to do necessarily with, oh, it's only for God's people. No, uh, basically it's any nation that engages in that kind of sin is going to get that kind of judgment. Well, let's continue on to the next example in the book of Hosea, chapter 4. Just the first three verses, I think, spells that out pretty clearly. Hear the word of the Lord. O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love, and no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore the land mourns, and all who dwell in it languish, and also the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, and even the fish of the sea are taken away. So again, this is really, I think it's harder to argue that this is just pure imagery here. God is being very, very clear about what Israel is doing. They're basically violating all the commandments, murder, stealing, adultery, swearing, lying. They break all bounds, all promises, and this bloodshed heaps upon bloodshed. And God says, as a result, the land is in mourning. Everything is, everything is languishing, not just the people, the beasts, the birds, the fish, they're all being taken away because of the sin of Israel. Now, how exactly that happens is is an interesting discussion, but it's certainly tied to the violence and wickedness of the land. So let's move on now to uh, prophecies concerning non-Israelite nations, so the pagan nations, because I want to make this clear that this goes beyond just the land of, of Israel. We have in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 50, a prophecy against Babylon. So here's what it says, starting in verse 33. Thus says the Lord of hosts, The people of Israel are oppressed, and the people of Judah with them. All who took them captive have held them fast. They refuse to let them go. Their Redeemer is strong. The Lord of hosts is his name. He will surely plead their cause, that he may give rest to the earth, but unrest to the inhabitants of Babylon. A sword against the Chaldeans, declares the Lord, and against the inhabitants of Babylon, and against her officials and her wise men. A sword against the diviners, that they may become fools, 
a sword against her warriors, that they may be destroyed, a sword against her horses and against her chariots, and against all the foreign troops in her midst, that they may become women, a sword against all her treasures, that they may be plundered, a drought against her waters, that they may be dried up, for it is a land of images, and they are mad over idols. Therefore wild beasts shall dwell with hyenas in Babylon, and ostriches shall dwell in her. She shall never again have people, nor be inhabited for all generations. As when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighboring cities, declares the Lord, so no man shall dwell there, and no son of man shall sojourn in her. So that passage is certainly a judgment against Babylon. It's very interesting that God mentions the concept of rest. He is going to uh, bring judgment against Babylon to give rest to the earth, but unrest to the Babylonians, to the inhabitants of Babylon. So that's the, the judgment. They don't get rest. Uh, the land gets rest, but not the Babylonians. And and basically God uh, speaks uh, judgment against her. Uh, it's, it's It covers every aspect of, of Babylon. Her armies, her cities, her land, her waters be dried up that there be wild animals dwelling amongst the cities. So again, you, you have this connection with sin, judgment, and uh, decreation, or a lack of rest. And then, looking at Ezekiel chapter 29, we have a judgment against Egypt. And I'll read, uh, starting in verse 1 here. In the tenth year, in the tenth month, on the twelfth day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, set your face against Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and prophesy against him and against all Egypt. Speak and say, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great dragon that lies in the midst of his streams, that says, My Nile is my own, I made it for myself. I will put hooks in your jaws, and make the fish of your stream stick to your scales, and I will draw you up out of the midst of your streams with all the fish of your streams that stick to your scales, and I will cast you out into the wilderness, you and all the fish of your streams. You shall fall on the open field, and not be brought together or gathered. To the beasts of the earth and to the birds of the heavens I give you as food. Then... All the inhabitants of Egypt shall know that I am the Lord, because you have been a staff of reed to the house of Israel. When they grasped you with the hand, you broke and tore all their shoulders. And when they leaned on you, you broke and made all their loins to shake. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will bring a sword upon you and will cut off from you man and beast. And the land of Egypt shall be a desolation and a waste. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Because you said... The Nile is mine, and I made it. Therefore, behold, I am against you and against your streams, and I will make the land of Egypt an utter waste and desolation, from Migdal to Syene, as far as the border of Cush. No foot of man shall pass through it, and no foot of beast shall pass through it. It shall be uninhabited forty years, and I will make the land of Egypt a desolation in the midst of desolated countries. And her city shall be a desolation forty years among cities that are laid waste. I will scatter the Egyptians among the nations and disperse them through the countries. So interesting in this passage, it's very similar to what God does with Israel, uh, scattering them amongst the nations. So what God does with Israel is not necessarily unique. He, he's doing the same thing to Egypt. He's going to judge them. They get 40 years of, of judgment, cut off from the land. It's going to be desolate and ruined. And what's quite striking is that 
it's again a reversal of God's design. In book of Genesis, uh, to, to Noah, God says that I give the birds of the air and the beasts of the field to you as food. But now God reverses that for Egypt and says, now you will be given as food to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. So you have this flipping on its head, um, the the concept of, of creation and the way God has designed the world. So essentially that's how judgment is. It's a it's a decreation from Genesis. It's a flipping over of the of the uh, created order and it, it is um, a lack of rest. It's a giving of unrest to to the land. So all of this to say uh, that judgment from God can be both rapid and slow. Rapid as in the ten plagues of Egypt, but also slow as in the, the spewing out of the land, um, the, the people of Canaan, later on Israel, and then other nations like Egypt and Babylon. So, uh, but, but the point is that if a nation engages in sin, it will be displaced. It will be removed from the land. Um, that's, that God will judge that nation, and essentially that land will vomit it out. The land will turn against the people you'll see a reduction in population of the sky, the sea, and the land. The birds and the beasts will flee from it. And essentially, I think what you see is uh, the full force of the curse of the ground. Like I said uh, in the last uh, episode, that when Adam sinned, you see the land responds. It's It's a curse. But the land yields up the thorns and the thistles, and Adam and humanity have to work very hard to get the food. But if a people continue in sin, it just gets worse and worse. More thorns, more thistles, more wild beasts, and the land will not yield its food. It just becomes harder and harder and more difficult, whereas I also think the reverse is true, that as a nation engages in righteousness and repentance, and obeys God, you'll see a fruitfulness of the land, a land flowing of milk and honey. We see that with Israel. We see that all throughout Scripture with someone like Job or Abraham. Uh, you know, th- those individuals, they were righteous individuals. They did right things, and they served the Lord, and the Lord, and the Lord blessed them, right? But those nations that engage in wickedness, the, the Lord judges and takes from them. So what application does this have for today? Well, I mean, it's pretty clear. God is the same God, and he still judges in the same way. In the past, he judged both Israel and pagan nations. And I think the same is true today. Uh, Similar judgments were used on both those outside the covenant and those inside the covenant. Now, Israel got it worse in many ways because they should have known better. So essentially, those people that have been given great light, uh, that judgment upon them is stronger. It's worse. So, how does this relate now to climate change? Well, first question to ask, does climate change exist? And I think the clear answer is yes. There is very likely, on the one hand, a natural type of climate change that is cyclical. It would exist regardless of whether or not mankind existed, just the way that God ordered the cosmos. Um, It's not too different than seasons and moon phases. We see we see a circular kind of pattern in the moon and in the stars and in the seasons. Uh, it seems very reasonable that there is a, uh, a cyclical pattern 
with regard to climate. But there's also a supernatural climate change that's tied to man's sin. It's not part of the normal workings of the planet, although one could argue that the normal response of the planet against sin is vomiting from the land. Like, the land is designed by God. The land is designed to function a certain way. So when you sin against God, the land is going to respond to you the way that it does. It's going to respond to you with violence and with resistance and with vomiting. So there's, that's just the consequences of sin. But ultimately, it's supernatural because it's tied to the God of Scripture, not just any God, not Mother Nature, not Darwinian evolutionary theory, but to the God of Scripture. So it's quite clear, man's sin and wickedness leads to desolation, man's repentance and righteousness leads to fruition. Now, there's three ways, I would say, in which our disobedience leads to desolation of the land. I think they're all true. They're all tied together. First, I mentioned earlier, direct consequences for violating God's law. God has given laws regarding how humans are to treat God's creation. Last week, we looked at um, the law concerning not taking both the mother bird and her children, not over-harvesting the land. There's also a law regarding not muzzling an ox when it's treading out the grain. These laws are put by God for a reason. And the reason is to protect his creation and to result in flourishing, fruition. If we discard if we discard that law and completely disregard it, there will be natural consequences. If you simply over-harvest, you can't be surprised when you run out of whatever it is you were harvesting. So creation was designed to be treated a certain way, and if you mistreat it, those are just natural consequences. Number two consequences of creation fighting back against us. Again, this is tied to the very first uh, consequence, but like I said, the ground is cursed because of man. Man continues to sin, the ground continues to fight back. Why is it that we have the rise of new diseases, like back in the 80s, the rise of AIDS, or, or new threats like chemicals in the water? Why are there an increase in allergies? Uh, amongst children, amongst people in the land? Is it because allergies were never never existed in the past? Well, maybe. Is it because we they just existed but no one knew about them? Oh, well, maybe. Uh, but is it also tied to um, the idea that the land is fighting against us? Maybe. And I think that more research uh, needs to be done on the origin of allergies and the rise of allergies, um, whether it's peanut, tree nut, whatever the case may be, not necessarily because of a particular person's sin, but as a nation sins and the land begins to resist that nation, um, is there something to be said about the rise of allergies? And again, the example we see in scripture is that the land vomits out the wicked. The land vomited out the Canaanites and the land vomited out the Israelites when they did the very same things that the Canaanites did. And that's a very broad term, the idea of being spewed out of the land. But it, I think it involves everything, top to bottom. Uh, birds, beasts, um, allergies, diseases, famine, plague, all those things. And ultimately, the land demands rest from man's wickedness. I mentioned before that in Second Chronicles, Israel is removed from the land so that it could enjoy its Sabbaths. And the land, even today, groans under the sin of man, Romans chapter 8, verse 22. So these are 
consequences of, of creation fighting back against us because of our sin, which ultimately began with Adam. Now, the third aspect in which we see maybe climate change is uh, God chooses to withhold his mercy and to bring judgment. And again, this is tied to the last two points. If you disobey God's law and if you wage war against the land, God, uh, he might be merciful for a while. You know, the rain falls on the just and the unjust, but ultimately it will not, uh, it will not lead well. So when God uh, chooses uh, not to be merciful, but to bring judgment, which is tied to the above two items I mentioned before, you break his law, you wage war against the land that God created, um, judgment will come and things can accelerate especially when the iniquity is full. And we saw this in the book of Genesis. Why does God tell Abram or Abraham that it's going to be 400 years before his, his descendants are going to come into the land? And he says, because the sin of the Amorite is not yet complete. So God is, is letting the sin build up, build up, build up, and then comes, comes judgment. Now, when this happens, though, the nation should respond with repentance, and failure to repent leads to final judgment. A good example of this is Amos chapter 4, where um, Israel is supposed to turn back to the Lord. And it's interesting how God disciplined Israel and how they responded. So here's what it says, chapter 4, verse 6 of Amos. I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I also withheld the rain from you, when there were yet three months to the harvest, I would send rain on one city and send no rain on another city. One field would have rain and the field on which it did not rain would wither. So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water and would not be satisfied. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I struck you with blight and mildew, your many gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees and your olive trees, the locusts devoured. Yet you did not return to me declares the Lord. I sent among you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword and carried away your horses and I made the stench of your camp go up into your nostrils. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew some of you as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah and you were as a brand plucked out of the burning. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you, Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. So we see there that in this case, meeting God is not a good thing. Uh, prepare to meet your maker, essentially. Final judgment because of uh, your lack of response to discipline. And God's discipline, certainly he's merciful, uh, giving us what we don't deserve. But his discipline is also tied to the land. It's tied to how Israel is not getting rain, getting rain, uh, not prospering, prospering, and um, yet they did not return. So the bottom line is that the world is groaning, and we as humans are groaning as well as we, wait, as we await Christ's return. The groaning is a result of futility and corruption in the world through sin. But as the land falls deeper into sin, this groaning will increase. Now, sin results in warfare and separation. Back in the Garden of Eden, we saw that when Adam sinned, a war broke out. God against man. Man versus man. And man versus nature. So the land, in a way, is fighting back because of our sin. 
And just as God cursed the ground and exiled Adam from the garden, so too does he curse the ground and exile people from any land on the earth, because it's all his land. And an example of how this applies to any nation on the planet is Jeremiah chapter 18, which uh, is a beautiful passage here I'll read to you, starting in verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel, and the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand, and he reworked it into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to do. Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord? Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation, concerning which I have spoken, turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I intended to do to it. Now, therefore, say to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am shaping disaster against you and devising a plan against you. Return every one from his evil way and amend your ways and your deeds. So interesting, this passage, God is very clear, like, it doesn't matter what the nation is. If I have this plan upon the nation, plan of judgment, and if that nation repents, I will relent. Just think of Nineveh and the book of Jonah. But if I have a plan to do good to this nation and to bless it, and it does evil, I will relent and there will be judgment. And that nation needs to obey and listen to God's word. So in the case of the United States, we have been given great light, being that we are a country that was built upon Judeo-Christian values. Our judgment, therefore, will be great for rejecting that light. And the climate change that we see is fully biblical. Uh, it, in, in the way that the climate is changing badly or against us, it's a result of our sin against God. It's not a sin against Mother Nature. And what's interesting is that unbelievers, non-Christians, still have this concept of sin. They think that we are sinning, but we're sinning against Mother Nature or against this generic earth, this planet, right? But their solution is a form of repentance to an idol. It's, a, it's idolatry. There's no mercy uh, from their perspective. There's no true salvation. Obedience to, you know, the green uh, concept or environmentalism or the Green New Deal, it involves tyranny and statism and, and, and control and murder. And interestingly, um, unbelievers think that uh, to serve and to please Mother Nature requires the removal of people from the land, the removal of man's hand from creation. And that's a twisting of things. That's a false law from a false god because God made man to be steward over the land. It was not good until man was created and man is supposed to touch the land. He's supposed to do so properly as a good steward, not to abuse the land, but an untouched, uncultivated wilderness is not good from the perspective of God. God wants man to fill the earth, subdue it, and to cultivate it, to make it fruitful, to take the wilderness and make it garden, if you will. So the idea that we just need to get rid of people, we need to reduce our population to not touch things, uh, that's the only way to please Mother Nature and to, and to 
stop this uh, judgment of climate change, well, that's idolatry. That's a false god and a false law. Um, yes, there is such a thing as sin. Yes, there is climate change as a form of judgment. But the answer is repentance and faith in the true God of Scripture and obedience to God's law, not a false law. So, anyways, there's much more that can be said on this topic. I hope that you found it useful and interesting. I encourage you to, to look up some of those passages and to read them for yourself and to think more about uh, the issue of climate change and how you as a Christian can respond to those who, um, from an unbelieving mindset, advocate for uh, global change or control by the government. Uh, I, th I don't think the answer is denying climate change, but I do think it is pointing them from a false god to the true god and the true gospel. So thank you again for tuning in. Again, if you have any questions, please feel free to email me at the gbgpodcast at gmail.com. Find me on Facebook, Twitter, on all, all kinds of social media. Please um, share the show with a friend, thumbs up, stars, reviews, all those things help to get this out to more people. So again, thank you. But until next time, take care. 